So, death. Do you have anything planned? Have you chosen the music? A casket? Have you given any thought to the circumstances in which you'd prefer to meet it? Suddenly, at home perhaps, among your family and friends, or unobserved? Most of us don't get to choose, thanks to dementia, perhaps, or the processes that surround the end of life in hospitals, where most of us breathe our last. It seems strange, a bit vulgar even, to ask such questions, which is why Maggie Ferguson decided to confront them. My name's Matthew Sweet, and this is the podcast from Intelligent Life, sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. And with me is our literary editor, Maggie Ferguson, who's taken on death in the January-February issue of the magazine. Maggie, you've been mapping out our culture's relationship with death, and your own too, I think. Where do we stand with it right now? I think there's a division between people who bury their heads in the sand and don't want to think about it at all, and they're probably the majority, and then a growing number of people who are very, very, very keen to talk about it. And I describe in my piece how the death cafe movement is really booming. And I went along to a death cafe in Putney, expecting it to be a number of elderly people sort of gathered in a rather depressing way around a table. And in fact, I was struck that most of them were much younger than I am, and they were perfectly happy people. They had boyfriends and families and children and that kind of thing. But they regularly came out to chat about the end of their lives. I found it astonishing. Now, what is the Death Cafe movement? The Death Cafe movement began in Switzerland. It was set up by somebody called Bernard Cretaz, who thought after his wife's death that it would be good for people to be able to gather and talk about death. And that might be anything from talking about how you yourself want to die, whether you want to be in hospital or at home, to how's the best way to organise a funeral, how's the best way to teach children about death. Anyway, he started in this small way in Switzerland and then began to take off. And in this country, a man called John Underwood read about it in The Independent in, I think, 1991 and decided he wanted to set up a death cafe here. And it's just gone like wildfire. There are now, I'm not quite sure how many in this country, but if you type in your postcode, just like you're looking for your local home base or something, you're put in touch with your local death cafe. And there seem to be hundreds of them. This is a movement that is trying to recuperate something, is trying to revise our relationship, our attitudes to death. What is it resisting? What is it working against? Where did the desire to distance ourselves from death come from, do you think? Well, I don't know if it was a desire, but I think it has a lot to do partly with people living much longer and medicine getting much more developed so that it begins to feel almost as if, you know, you never will die and as if mortality is just like cancer or something is another thing that can be treated. So I think it's partly that. And I think that because fewer and fewer people die at home now, it does leave a lot of people not having any idea what death actually looks like. I did a kind of straw poll in the office and most people had not ever seen a dead body. I think 50 or 100 years ago, that really wouldn't just simply wouldn't have been the case. So I don't think there's a desire to distance oneself from death, but I think it's just happened naturally. As you point out in the piece, there would have been a time when we would have been quite used to the idea of a dead body being present in the house, of somebody not being taken away instantly, of death happening on the premises, as it were. So have you ever seen a dead body? I've seen two dead bodies. The first was incredibly inspiring. It was the body of an Orkney poet called George Mackay Brown, who I'd got to know well at the end of his life. 
And I was rather dreading having to look at him in his coffin. But actually, it was the most wonderful experience. He looked absolutely beautiful. And as if just looking at him, you thought it was easy to believe he'd gone to a better place. And then I saw my father-in-law. I insisted to my husband that we should see him, having had this wonderful experience. And he looked awful and rather horrific. So the jury's out now in my mind about whether I like seeing dead bodies. Our distance from the site of death does seem to be part of a bigger cultural turn, doesn't it? As you say, there was no desire to do it, but it just seems to have attended other transformations, which most of us, I would think, are transformations for the better. I mean, it goes with sanitation, doesn't it? And central heating and hot running water and pasteurised milk. They all seem to be part of that turn that removes us from the dirty biological business of life. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And As I describe in the piece, right at the beginning of the piece, my most vivid experience of people not being able to face death was actually a conversation with an undertaker who came to see my parents. They were very keen to have everything sort of tidily sorted when they were moving out of the house where they'd brought us all up. And they called over the undertaker and she would not use the words death or dying. She used this slightly sinister phrase, in your hour of need. And when we then said to her, when you say in your hour of need, you mean when they die, she almost sort of jumped out of her seat. If an undertaker can't deal with death, then it's a bit worrying. By your account, they seem to be the people least able to yes. to deal with it. And yes. uh, I mean, as you describe it, this rather kind of ghastly language of marketing comes in and it's about selling you a particular kind of coffin with a rather pretentious name. My parents live in deep suburbia and the coffins had similar names to the most pretentious kind of houses in suburbia. I mean, things like the Balmoral and that kind of thing. And it was sort of almost as if, yeah, death was the next kind of step up the property ladder just absolutely refusing to face it head on. It's interesting, though, because in the 19th century, when rituals of mourning were very elaborate and whether there was a similar kind of economy of death, you know, you would buy special clothes, you would buy, you know, the sales pitch, I'm sure, was probably something similar. But that seems to be a culture much more in touch with the kind of the gritty side of death as well. So it seems like we've lost something and gained something and are in a rather unsatisfactory position. Yes. I I wonder, there seems to me, though, to be a kind of change happening. I think the fact that Atul Gawande's book has been such a huge bestseller. The Doctor and Reith Lecturer. The Reith Lecturer, exactly. Uh, His Being Mortal has been such an enormous bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic. That sort of suggests to me, I mean, I think he's encouraged people to think more about death. But I think his success is also riding on the fact that people have got to a stage where they want to think about it more. So I think it's a kind of two-way thing. The framework for thinking about it has changed, though, hasn't it? A hundred years ago, you know, we were a country that was much more engaged with Christianity. We had a set of ideas that were rather ancient to process this experience. And Mm. in a secular society, perhaps we haven't developed comparable rituals that would help us negotiate it. Yes, I think that's right. I think the Death Cafe movement, actually. It's sort of, for some people, a kind of substitute for a kind of religion. To be able to go and talk in groups like that a hundred years ago, they would have been meeting in the same way in church. I think it's a similar thing. You met a man who had participated in a kind of what I could describe as the ceremonial end of his mother's life. It was, I suppose, a form of assisted suicide. I don't know whether it would be correct to describe it in those terms. Yes. But it was highly formalised, almost like a ritual that you might take part um, in in a religious context. Could you describe that? Yeah. This was a man called Mark Vlessing. 
and he is Dutch. And in Holland, they do have assisted euthanasia. So his mother, I think, was 81 and had cancer. And she just decided she didn't want the cancer to carry on and her just to get more and more ill and frail and decrepit. So she had a huge 81st birthday party in Holland for all her grandchildren and everything. Uh, she then said goodbye to the grandchildren, told them she wouldn't be seeing them again. And then her son and daughter and husband went to sit with her. They knew exactly what time the doctor was going to come in to administer the fatal dose. They spent two hours laughing, looking back at, over the years together, apparently having a very, very jolly time. And then there was a knock on the door. Uh, Mark said a bit like in a Mozart opera, there was a sort of... <laughs> A double knock, and the doctor came in, and within ten seconds she was she was gone. And he, Mark, well, it was very moving listening to him, and he found it very, very deeply moving experience, even more extraordinary, he said, than watching his own children being born. There I'm are some sure people would safe, respond but... to that with sympathy, and others perhaps who might recoil from it. There is no consensus. There about is this, no consensus, is no. And what really struck me researching this article is that there's an enormous amount of integrity on both sides of the argument about assisted dying. Everyone has their view, but I don't think that anyone could say that, you know, all the people who are for it or against it are kind of good or bad. It's a kind of deeply personal thing. Do you think some kind of consensus is coming? Do you feel that we are at a sort of provisional moment as far as our attitudes to death are concerned. There used to be a consensus about it in the past, or there was at least a script that everybody followed. We're not at a moment like that now, aren't we? But maybe one is coming. Consensus about assisted dying? No, I don't think we are moving towards a consensus. I mean, it was very striking, the latest vote in the House of Commons in Westminster. I, I was really expecting that to come out in favour, and it was huge majority against still. So I don't think there's a consensus at all. Everyone has these very, very strongly held beliefs on one side or the other. What are yours? Well, mine, I am not in favour of assisted dying myself. But I was, as I say, I was very, very moved talking to people who were. I think one person who I found really moving was the biographer Michael Holroyd, who had this ghastly experience of his mother's death. And she was in a sort of grim hospital with bars against her bed, stop her getting out. and He describes it as her, her being caged. Caged he? he leaves in. the room and suddenly he comes back and finds that... He left the that... room, yeah, to get an aspirin because he had such a headache and came back and there she was tangled up in these bars and dead. And that kind of thing is appalling. That makes him think, you know, it shouldn't be like this and we should be able to do it more tidily and humanely. Then is the... death tidy, though? No, I don't Death think it is. Death is a sort of dirty, messy business. I don't think it, it is at all. And several of the hospice nurses I spoke to said in all kinds of ways, it's very like birth, not least because it is messy. You know, there's you can do your best to make it as peaceful as possible, but you absolutely can't guarantee it. And you can't tell what people will go through in their last moments. I mean, I'm fascinated by this thing called terminal agitation, which two of the hospice nurses I spoke to said they often see which is in the last 24 hours usually of somebody's life, they suddenly have this terrible agitation and seem terribly unsettled and as if they're going through some sort of agony and nobody knows whether it's existential or just kind of their organs closing down. But there's nothing you can do about it. So it's not, no, death isn't tidy at all. What fascinates me about this is that you know what you've described there very vividly seems absolutely at odds with the ideal that I think a lot of people have that death 
should be something peaceful and possibly something that happens in the presence of friends and family. Now, that to me is an idea that personally I feel very ambivalent about. The something that tells me that death is actually something that when it comes to it, we have to do alone. Yes, and I think a lot of people find that. Again, the hospice nurses I spoke to for this piece said very, very often, I mean, it is extraordinary that even when you're in that final state of weakness, people do seem to be able to choose at what point they actually let go. And very often they wait until somebody has, children have arrived or something they've been waiting for, they wait until they've seen them and then they've left the room and then they die by themselves. That seems to be a something that a lot of people like to do. I've observed that. I've experienced that a couple of times in life, actually. That seems to me to be something very, very strong. I feel I've seen that instinct manifest in people. Like, this is the moment. I'm not going to do this in front of anybody. Yes, yes. Has writing the piece changed your considerations about how you you might imagine your own end to take place? Um, I think that I might... Uh, not quite now, perhaps, but in maybe 10 years or something, put together an advanced directive. But that does seem to me a sensible thing to do so that, you know, people don't try and keep me alive if I've got pneumonia and I'm old and or put me into hospital when I'd rather be at home with the family and that kind of thing. That, that seems to me just about the one practical thing you can do. Otherwise, it's just made me slightly dread having dementia, which I'm quite likely to have because my dad has it. But I must say, I think that remains for me a rather frightening disease. And have you given any thought to the ceremony and elements like that? My you, funeral. Yeah. Do you want? Do you want to take <laughs> take all the take all the annoyance away from your loved ones about whether or not you should be in a in the barrel moral style coffin, for instance? Mm. You know. Do you yes. want to? Do you want? How much do you want to assert your own authority over those posthumous ceremonies? Over the posthumous thing, I couldn't care less whether I'm in a Balmoral or a Royal Oak or whatever they're all called particularly as I'd much rather be cremated than buried. I want to be sure I've actually gone. But otherwise, no, I haven't thought about it. Should we? Should we think about our funerals and things? Um, or are they for other people, perhaps? Are they not for us? I don't know. I've known some people who have completely planned their funerals. In fact, my husband's aunt was so thorough in the planning of her funeral, she even wrote out the envelopes in which the invitations were to go to her funeral. So rather sinisterly sort of a couple of days after she died, we had these letters in her handwriting inviting us to her funeral. She was that thorough. But it was a very moving service and moving because we knew this was exactly what she'd wanted. So maybe that's a good thing to do. But I haven't I haven't turned my mind to it yet. <laughs> Thank you very much, Maggie Ferguson. If you want to read Maggie's article, you'll find it in the January-February edition of Intelligent Life magazine. In print, on our app, or online at intelligentlifemagazine.com. 